independent media is more important than ever. We don't have a corporate network behind us, and we also don't have big green foundation grants. So we really do need you, and we are actively calling in your direct support so that we can continue exploring many of these topics and perspectives, often sidelined by mainstream media. If you're enjoying our show, please make sure you're subscribed and join us on Patreon today, starting at a tip of just $3 at patreon.com slash green dreamer. Every little bit helps and really adds up. And that is the power in community. So thank you so much for however you're able to support our work. Hey, it's your host, Kamea, and you're listening to Green Dreamer. As a community-powered podcast, which does not take corporate advertisers, and we really hope to keep it this way, we do need your help to keep the show alive. And if every listener chipped in just a little bit a month, we would meet our fundraising goal in no time. So join us today at greendreamer.com support. Also, if you haven't already, be sure to sign up to our newsletter at greendreamer.com to receive the highlights and resources from each episode. Climate reports and, and, and scholarship is actually predicated on a modernist idea of perceiving the world where we are detaching ourselves from the world. We are, we are making the world something that we observe and describe as a detached from ourselves. But it is a disconnected language that don't produce people relating with the actual problem. Now, mythology is a language that places knowledge of relation into relation with people by the way that it appeals to our emotions and our imaginations and it is a language that reaches deep into our instinctual system and our whole human constitution in order to make relational knowledge workable for us. Today we're speaking with Dr. Rune Yano Rasmussen whose research interest centers on the history of religions, and more specifically, Brazilian Orisha religion, which is one of the Afro-diasporic religions that has been really formative for Rune in influencing the ways that he then started re-engaging and recovering his own cultural heritage. Rune has lived in a number of countries in Europe, Africa, North and South America, and his present work focuses on the rejected animist land connectedness, ecological knowledge, and kinship with the greater community of beings in North European traditional knowledge. We start off here by exploring what it means to view the climate crisis as a relational crisis that mythology may offer a form of healing for, and relatedly, sitting with the question of why the numerous climate reports and ecological assessments that have been published seem to have been not potent enough to drive a collective cultural shift. As Rune previously shared, such reports, quote, don't produce a language that enables most people to relate properly to the situation. We have to use the deepest and strongest language available to us to remake human kinship with the world, end quote. Well, I think myths are narratives, stories that produce relation. If you have a weather phenomenon, then that deity, which is perhaps a thunder god or something, that deity is, in a sense, our relating to that or that complex of reality that we are relating to. If you are, say, Inuit and your whole life depends on relating with the sea, with the ocean, you, you derive your whole livelihood from that, then you're relating with the sea is an incredibly important relating and that relation is subjective. So the myth of the sea mother manifests relation for us, right? Now, climate reports and, and, and scholarship is actually predicated on a modernist idea of perceiving the world where we are detaching ourselves from the world. We are, we are making the world something that we observe and describe as a detached from ourselves. That's a really good thing in itself. It, it gives us a high level of knowledge. Climate reports from the UN represents an, an extremely high level of knowledge, but it is a problem that nobody get it. 
Nobody get it. Do you know anybody who ever read a climate report? I don't. <laughs> and and th- that's a little bit of a problem considering the fact that the content of those reports are that we are accelerating towards the biggest catastrophe in the history of life for 66 million years, right? That is the content, but people don't get it because the climate reports are communicating in a language of topsoil erosion and global tipping points and methane release and all these th- th- this difficult language that people don't don't understand. And that's why it is a disconnected language that don't produce people relating with the actual problem. Now, mythology is a language that places knowledge of relation into relation with people by the way that it appeals to our emotions and our imaginations. And it is a language that reaches deep into our instinctual system and our whole human constitution in order to make relational knowledge workable for us, right? So an example of a mythology that would give a a knowledge that can be compared with the UN climate reports that nobody reads, nobody understands, nobody gets, and nobody relates to, an example of, of a, I would say, much more relational knowledge could be the Ragnarok myth, which is a myth that emerged in the Viking Age as a reflection on a loss of traditional culture, which happened in that period, in the context where there was still a very imminent cultural memory of very, very, very extremely culturally and disruptive climate change that had happened just a couple of hundred years earlier in the in the preceding period in the Viking Age. So the myth of this relational collapse. You could say it's a traditional knowledge reflection on that the connectivity of the world, that the interconnectedness of the cosmos is not just something that's given. It's not just something we can take it for granted. It's actually threatened and it can collapse. And that is a very dangerous thing when it collapses. So, and this is uh, this is then, then a case of what you call uh, Eurodescendant traditional knowledge that there is this ancient prophecy that actually talks about relational collapse. And so when we are today living in a situation that, well, in my view and probably in the view of a lot of other people, is very characterized by relational collapse, we find these multiple ruptures of connectivity in our world today. When there's a myth actually talking about that, then that becomes very much a myth about our time. And it's a myth with an enormous potential to speak into our time and to give people understanding of what we are looking at. And that is actually some really scary shit because Mm -hmm. the Ragnarok myth it's not easy listening. It's it's really hardcore stuff. It is brother killing, killing each other, and and axe age, wolf age, and flames scorching the sky, and the the deep sea serpent rises and devours the land. And it, it's is an extremely dark and and frightening, I think, vision of well where we are going, and I think that like that kind of knowledge is stuff that that it ought to be projected it ought to be narrated it ought to be brought out there much more mm. in order to basically make people relate to it because the what i think that the deep knowledge in in the ragnarok myth is is that that what you see in the in in the ragnarok myth is that it is a myth on, of a cosmos that is extremely interconnected the, the the gods, for instance, are connected with the the trolls or the giants in the in the ancient Nordic worldview, and they are interconnected in so many ways. And they make babies with each other, and they play little games with each other, and cheat each other, and they exchange knowledge, and identify with each other, and descend from each other in myriads of ways. But in the Ragnarok, this whole web of connectedness that deteriorates and they end up in this cosmic collapse where they end up behaving pretty much like Christian angels and demons, sort of just in this absolute war of collapsed connectedness. And that means that this myth would be about 
reclaiming connectivity, connectedness, mm-hmm. not, for instance, about going out and fighting someone, you know, <laughs> but perhaps more, it's not about fighting the trolls on the deep level, it's about making babies with the trolls. <laughs> Right. It definitely sounds like there are very relevant teachings that we could learn from a myth like this. And something that I found really fascinating is when you talked about how conspiracy theories are, in a sense, animism out of place, animism that has gone bananas. And the subject of conspiracies is a big and messy one, especially because while there are a lot of misguided conspiracies floating around, there are also stories that are actually true that have been dismissed as conspiracy to discredit their possibility. But beyond that, I'd be curious to hear you expand on how the rejection of animistic relations with the world give room and create space for more theorizing of conspiracies within the human realm. My thinking with conspiracy theory is basically sort of an animist theory perspective on on what conspiracy theories are. And there's this amazing old tale. It's very, very well known in anthropology where the British anthropologist Evans Pritchett, he was uh, uh, learning from the uh, Asande in Central Africa. And when a granary fell down because it it was on poles and termites ate the poles and it fell down and killed a person. Then Evan Pritchard described how the Asande was, they were looking for a culprit. They were looking for somebody whose intention made that happen. And then they they ended up deciding that it was some, some witch being or something like that, which might not have been a human. I, I don't remember the details of, of that. Now, that way of thinking is foundational for how animists and perhaps in thereby humans in general, (laughs) encounter the world. We encounter the world as imbued with personhood and intention. Whenever something happens to us or to anything happens in the world, then there there is an intention in it. There's somebody who wants something to happen. And so if you look at animist engagement with the world, then there would be different ways of, you could say, disclosing or making a revelation revealing those intentions who is it that wants something with that stuff that happened there or that stuff that is not happening i'm not finding a girlfriend who is it that wants something with that situation perhaps people make a divination they they will throw their cory shells or or their tarot cards or their yijing sticks, and they, they will read them, and then they will, in this way, reveal an intention. However, when we move into the contemporary, modern, more disconnected way of perceiving the world, then what, what we find is that people still have that urge and that you could almost say knowledge that there is intention in stuff that happens. It's like if I'm meeting with you, I will know with the whole my whole being that you are a person and that you want things in the world like me, like mm-hmm. everybody, right? So, and in the same way, we humans, I think we know that there is intention and there is personhood in the world. So, but when we have been sort of, we have been prevented from realizing that or we've been prevented from revealing that to ourselves by the modern reality then we make up conspiracy theories because the modern reality that teaches us there's only personhood and intention inside human minds it's only inside our minds a tree or a river that's just a dead resource that's there for eurocentric modernity to come and exploit it as efficiently as possible and it doesn't have, there, there isn't a goddess in that river. The tree doesn't have a spirit. That, that's the modern idea. So when COVID hits the Western world, then, then we have lost the capacity to do what West Africans did in the 19th century and smallpox hit them. And they engaged the smallpox as a deity. Or what COVID, what happened with COVID in Northern India, where they engaged COVID as a goddess. We have lost that. And then all these weird stories kind of skew mythologies pop up where all of a sudden it's Bill Gates who is the person and intention that's inside the COVID. It's not the Corona Devi as the North Indians read 
you could say, or reveal to themselves the subject and intention of the COVID. And, and these conspiracy theories, they are, they're, they're deeply dysfunctional because they also, in many ways, they, they end up having harmful effects in the way that people relate with the COVID. Mm. That's super fascinating and interesting to think about how different theories or interpretations of the source of certain problems then lead people to engage and approach or ideate solutions in different ways. And a lot of your work has been centered on presenting Euro-animism as a path towards a culture of land connectedness and making kin with the greater community of the other than human beings around us. And I want to read this quote from you to preface my question. It is the construction of Nordic modernity and nationalism that creates the rejection of animism in Northern Europe. Animist knowledge has basically been, quote, Viking washed out of our construction of the self, end quote. I wonder if you could elaborate on this and how recovering and engaging with Euro traditional knowledge might release it from its association with right-wing extremism. Yeah, I think an important step in that is to actively do stuff and do stuff that is unambiguously stands in a different place than than right-wing extremism. The sort of mining of right-wing extremism of Euro-traditional heritage, particularly in Northern Europe, but I think also in other parts of Europe, that's actually something that goes back quite a bit. And I, I've used at some point, uh, I've used a lot the term Viking washing as an, this idea that if something is supposed to be legitimate in North European context, or as an, say an image, for instance, of identity, then it has to be Viking because Vikings are these aggressive, expansive hyper white people white or that's that's the myth of what vikings are in fact vikings were there was a rather short period in history where people were had this piracy uh, thing going on or a group of people in northern europe had this viking this uh, piracy thing going on a viking just means a pirate and that concept was made into sort of a general nomer or general label for essentially being North European or something like that in the 19th century with the explicit purpose of producing North European nationalisms, right? We are Vikings is a way of saying we are noble, expensive, virile, <laughs> warrior kind of people, which we're totally not. You know, if there's one thing in the world that Scandinavians are definitely, most certainly, totally not, it's probably Vikings. I mean, we're fairly mellow people, I think, and, and kind of, I think when we are best, which is not always, but when we are best, we are feminist and kind and, <laughs> and a little mm -hmm. bit mellow, yeah. <laughs> so, um, so this Viking motif has a, a history. Uh, however, I've also become more and more aware of, of the notion of Vikings as a possible positive attractor. Uh, I've been having some conversations uh, both on my own channel and also outside with, with the Australian thinker Tyson Junker Porter, who he, he mentioned this idea of Vikings as a as a motif that people can relate to. It's something that people know, and that means that people can actually, that it might be able to channel people into a traditional knowledge or a realization of the importance of traditional knowledge. So there's also that aspect to it. And I'm, I'm sort of, uh, I'm working a little bit on, on figuring out exactly where to place myself on the Viking washing or the Viking as a tractor. <laughs> but if we start with the, or if we look at the nationalism specifically, then that is an incredibly important and incredibly destructive part of how Euro-traditional knowledge has been encased in a specific way of producing an us, producing an identity, which is that, that there is an essence inside of us. We have perhaps an essential whiteness or an essential Danishness or something like that. This is sort of basic nationalist idea and vikings have have been used to produce that thing and that is a is a huge problem in in so many ways and the, that problem is partly a very real problem that you actually have real 
white supremacist groups who are sort of leaning over this whole North European cultural sphere and they're taking symbols and waving flags with them and, 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 and all that kind of stuff. So that's part of the problem. But paradoxically, we are actually also in some kind of a double bind as Euro descendants, which is that one thing is that that problem is real. And if you're a decent anti-racist person, then you're fighting that stuff. But another problem is that it, that that problem is being overexposed in the press, actually. So whenever people are talking about, for instance, Euro traditional animism, then there tend to be this sort of kind of clickbaity over-focus actually on the fact that it has been attempted owned by fascists. Now that serves to move it away from normal, decent, your descendant people. So mm. all the normal, kind, respectful, white North Americans that are there, they would probably be, they are of course being pushed away from their own access to their own traditional animist knowledge when that is being owned by actual fascists and when that then is becoming a big theme in, in the media. I don't know if you remember recently there was a um, there was a, an article in The Guardian that spoke about this, I think it was called like Inside the Last Whites Only Church in America. And there were heathen, a heathen group there which was ra racist. And then it was a black journalism student who was entering that group. And that whole setup came through as extremely clickbaity. And it then portrays that particular side, or, or the, which is a limited side, a real side, but a limited side of what recovery of Euro traditional knowledge today is, right? So, and, and can you see that's a double bind? How can you be anti-fascist yet also counter the the overexposure of the actual fascist. It's almost impossible. You can't do that. If you want to be an anti-fascist, you have to focus on fascism, you see? So what I'm trying to do and what other people are also trying to do is to to sort of almost move a little bit away from, from it, create staunchly anti-racist space and do something with it, right? So it's it's what is actually happening in there that is the purpose I was recently at a, a big rock festival in Norway, which is called the Midgarsblot. And these people there, they basically took a site that was strongly tainted by Nazism, like real Nazism during the Second World War. This ancient Iron Age, Viking Age sacred site was taken by Nazis and used for rallies during the Second World War. But what these people are doing now is that they take the site back they say, okay, so this is not a Nazi thing. It's a, a thousand years older and it's ours. It's part of our heritage. And they do something there. They have a, a, a festival. And on this festival, they have and they enforce a very strict ban on Nazi symbolism. So if you go there and you wear wave a Nazi flag, you will have two meter tall Norwegian <laughs> dudes looking at you saying, you can't have that here. You know, Please leave. And this is just one example of how people are creating something where they are, are pushing out the fascist association and then focusing on what they're actually doing. This is about, it's actually not about saying no to, to racism. It's about doing a rock festival. And I think that is exactly the right way of doing it. You are clearing the space of that stuff and then you're doing something. And on my channel and in, in my different cultural initiatives I'm also used uh, working in that way trying to make something cultural happen that is not tainted by that stuff mm. yeah so I'm certain that there's a lot of reclamation of what it means to engage with euro traditional culture that is very different than what the media or what people might associate with it. And that's beautiful because we need to diversify the narratives in order for people to realize that there are alternate ways of relating with their own 
heritage. And to take a step back, you've shared about the discrepancy between what people typically imagine as being, quote, traditional and what it really means. So what misconceptions about traditional do you think are important to address? And to add nuance here, how would you clarify the relationship between what you've been describing as traditional for Euro descendants and indigenous as something that may share deeper roots and a similar guidance for healthier relations with the world, but ultimately is paramount as a distinction for its political implications. Yeah, I think I think it's really important to to make the distinction, even though the two things are very very similar, and that is indigenous and traditional. When we talk, uh, the the important difference is that your descendants have not been colonized, or mo- most your descendants have not been colonized. They've been colonizers. We've been colonizers, or mostly been <laughs> colonizers. You can have people who would be racialized as black in North America, but who also have Euro descendant descendancy. They have European descent as well. So they have a right to also be have access to Euro descendant culture and, and feel at home in that as well. That's part of the reason it's important, I think, to modify the concept of white and whiteness, because it's extremely exclusive. But when you talk about Euro descendant descendant people, then you can have a person who would be not white, but actually your ascendant. Yeah, uh, that's just uh, to to flick that in there. I met, for instance, an, an African-American woman on this festival that I just mentioned in Norway. And she has uh, European ancestry and are interested in this kind of uh, metal rock and these kind of things. Mm-hmm. She should be allowed uh, as a fully legitimate, also conceptually we should understand her as a fully legitimate Euro descendant too. So this this person grew up with a white mother, and uh, but uh, she's black passing. So of course, part of her heritage is is Euro descendant. So this is not because I want to say that everybody in the world are Europeans and that Euro <laughs> Europe being European is the standard of humanity. <laughs> That's not my point at all. It's just to say that this that you have a person who has uh, Euro descendants as part of her background. And it's really important that when we're talking about Eurocentrism, that we that we have space for her too. Whiteness is an exclusive thing. She would not pass as white, I think, but there should be space for her in Eurocentric cultural heritage. The other thing is is bigotry, basically. She's also she might be racialized as black. She's perhaps also Afro-descendant, but she certainly also should be allowed connecting if she wants to her Eurocentric side. Mm. Cool. That was a little bit of a, a sidetrack from the indigenous uh, indigenous traditional thing. Now, the UN actually have a definition of what it means to be indigenous. And there's a couple of different criteria. Firstness in an area and attached to traditional lifestyle. And and one of the important markers is that indigenous peoples have been exposed to colonization or marginalization by dominant, typically, states. And if you are, for instance, I'm a majority person in the country where I live. I belong to a majority. I'm also First Nation. I mean, you have to go back millennia and millennia to find somebody who perhaps were not of the same kind of stock of people. Of course, people always mix and move around and stuff like that. But but uh, I'm definitely First Nation in, in, in the place that I live. But not being colonized is a really, really important distinction. This also means something about how to, for instance, establish this knowledge tradition. When you look at the international scholarship and thinking and so on, there's a lot of indigenous knowledge thinking, but there's almost no Eurocendent traditional knowledge thinking. And I think part of the reason is that, that I mean, of course, I cannot walk up as a scholar to a, an indigenous knowledge institute and say, hey, I have indigenous knowledge too, and I'm studying that stuff, and it's really awesome because I belong to a, a group of people where there are, I think there are six million people who uh, speak my first language. We have our own state and our own television channels and anything, everything. And if you have an indigenous knowledge institute, say in Canada and Australia and something, then those those concrete 
means, those resources that they have, they're supposed to be directed to people where there are perhaps only 11 individuals left in the world who speak that language still, or a little bit more, a little bit fewer. They, they are supposed to be directed to people whose culture have been incredibly marginalized by your descendants, by the way, you know. So, and that means that that when you are presenting your traditional knowledge, you cannot impose on, for instance, indigenous knowledge when we're talking about concrete resources. I think it, it, you know they could include us at conferences and so on. That wouldn't it wouldn't take resources from anyone. That wouldn't be a problem. I was included in an indigenous uh, knowledge conference recently, but unfortunately I couldn't go. But the difference between indigenous and traditional is basically the political domination and colonization process, which makes a very big difference. So traditional yeah. knowledge is a way of saying, well, the indigenous knowledge of majority populations, basically. And the word traditional in itself has, that has in itself a little bit of a problematic ring when you use it in, in, in a Euro-traditional or a Euro-descendant context because traditionalism is actually also the sort of fascist leaning sort of ideas and idea systems that have taken that word traditionalism. And they then phrase traditionalism as this kind of conservatism really which is it's something that's static and it's something that's old and it's something that is very identitarian it's like focused on our our cultural coherence and so on. And this is a, a place where a traditional knowledge thinking uh, like Australian uh, Tyson Juncker-Porter, like the one that he introduced, is extremely useful because he thinks of traditional knowledge as something that's very dynamic. It's very connective. It's something that changes. It's very transformational. It's always relating with, well, one thing is it's relating across cultural lines, but it's also re relating with changing landscapes. And in the sort of in, in the Euro sphere, the gringo sphere, <laughs> there is this idea often that that traditionalism, this romanticist idea is that static nationalist kind of cultural conservatives thing, but that's actually not what traditional and and then and then that is often identified as as fascist, which it might be in some cases. However, if that's fascist, then is an Inuit queer activist then fascist? No, that doesn't make any sense, you know? So you see, th this is another one of these double binds mm -hmm. that seem to be holding your descendants sort of in the clutches of whiteness, you could almost say, you know, bound in seclusion from our traditional knowledge, uh, knowledge reservoirs. Yeah. I want to go a little deeper into this. You've noted before that the point of mythology is creating relation, not creating consistent narrative. And I do think there's often a misunderstanding that traditional means something that is fixed in the past. And there are growing movements of people who are fascinated by ancestral cultures and traditional knowledges who are eager to bring them back. And I think that is really beautiful and there are always things that we can learn from our deeper histories and myths and cultures. And at the same time, I wonder if a dogmatism in fetishizing or seeing traditional knowledge and mythological teachings as fixed could become unhealthy as well. If these stories and teachings aren't given the fluidity to sort of evolve and become a co-creation with the ever-changing dynamics and characteristics of our landscapes and communities of today. And therefore, whether we might need new myths as well to help us reroute ourselves to this very time and place. Amen. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I totally agree with what you say there. Exactly. Like the imagination of distant idealized pasts is not not necessarily a good idea, particularly not for your descendants. I mean, it, it might be a better idea for other people whose whose present is very characterized by oppression, for instance. But for for your descendants, and perhaps also for a lot of other people, the casting of this static ideal past, which is often represented by notions of purity. It is compromised by ideas of 
contamination and, and the, the, these kind of ideals. I, I don't think that they are particularly good for producing us as contemporary traditionalists that are dealing with our or, or re- renewing our traditional knowledge into our time. So, and, and that also entails some rather serious questions because how do you, for instance, if you, if you are an indigenous person and, and, and most of the spiritual tradition has been discontinued uh, in all kinds of violent ways, or how do you if you're a Eurodescendant and your, your uh, traditional culture is preserved in weird medieval chronicles and that kind of stuff, you know, mm-hmm. h- how do you take that and bring it into an ongoing dialoguing, dynamic, transformative flow of engaging the times that we live in. And I don't think that's an easy task. And like, I I think I'm trying to do it, you know, and I think it has uh, that doing it has to have a certain level of playfulness, playfulness. You, you, you need to, there need to be a, yeah, a lightness to that stuff. But I also think that stuff like relating very actively to contemporary expression, that, that's just like one concrete thing that, that I've been trying to do, like make reviews of contemporary stuff that's going on. Like, you know, there, there, there was a Netflix series called uh, Ragnarok, which was talking about the Ragnarok myth. And I, I made a little review of it. I thought it had some very problematic sites. Uh, so when I'm making a review of this piece of contemporary production of traditional knowledge, I'm actually using this traditional knowledge in a very contemporary way. I'm bringing it into our time as a way of thinking about stuff in our time. And that also comes with, I think, with political stuff. When we are seeing stuff like I don't know, the rise of Donald Trump. That is something that we can we can look at that from the lens of traditional knowledge and analyze it from the lens of traditional knowledge. So so these sort of stuff that's happening, stuff that's going on, sort of getting into the ways of thinking rather than the content, the data content of what we're thinking. Does it make sense what I'm saying? Yeah. And there's so much more to this as well. So I'm really excited to re-listen to this conversation and I'm sure it'll spark new thoughts and inspirations in me afterwards. But, you know, a lot of what I've learned from your work leads me to ponder this bigger question. And I know this might move beyond your specific area of focus, so I welcome you to answer this in whatever way you see fit. But I wonder if it would be accurate to say that people of every or maybe most cultures and religions today have deeper roots and ties to animistic ways of relating to the world, and that these ways of relating to the world can be relearned and practiced by people of various cultures and religions today, even if their more contemporary teachings and cultural norms might have long been disentangled from, or even sometimes seem contradicting to animistic worldviews. Yeah, I think you're right in that. And I, I think that different religions possibly have slightly different capacities for producing animist relatedness. I'm not a big fan of of criticizing other people's religion, but I think the religion that you come from yourself, you are perhaps allowed to criticize a little bit. And I would say that stuff like, for instance, Protestant Christianity, I come from a context dominated by Protestant Christianity. I I I think it has... It is, that's probably an example of a religion that's a little bit difficult for it to produce animist relatedness. But I would very much encourage Protestant Christians to find that in their religion because religions are always rich. They're always filled with contradictions and, and different aspects as they are sort of rolling through time and, and, and they are... Have have a great capacity to reinvent them themselves, but also, as you say, I think you, uh, I think that all over the world, you find this sort of first you find a resurgence of attention or valorization of animist parts of religion, and 
I would imagine that if you if you look at say Asian religion, I'm just saying something that I don't know a lot about here. You would probably find first you probably find extremely rich animist traditions that are still there and that are still being practiced. But even if there are parts of it that are perhaps not particularly animist, I would imagine that perhaps there are forms of Buddhism that are not particularly animist. I could imagine. I'm just I'm just kind of speculating a little bit here. Perhaps Confucianism is a little bit doesn't have but even if if, if there are these aspects here and there that are not particularly animist, I'm pretty sure that you can, if you dig in it just a little bit, you're probably going to find a lot of good stuff. You're probably going to find a lot of stuff that is about connectedness to to lands that that, mm. that we inhabit, basically. In fact, there was a, was he Nepalese guy who was, he, he was actually, he had written a huge uh, work that was nominated for a Nobel Prize. It was a researcher, a cultural researcher, about Asian traditional knowledge in relation to how, I think it was something about how to construct states or something like that. But this is just examples. I mean, you find people turning towards their animist traditions pretty much all over the planet. You're going to find, you find it uh, among Afro-descendants in, 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 in the Americas to a very large degree. You find it in Africa, all the way through the, uh, the indigenous uh, world. And you find it in Europe to a very large degree, this turning towards animist religiosities. Also, by the way, Euro, among Euro-Americans. And in that process, I think that people can be looking at all kinds of stuff Catholicism, for instance, I think there are people that are working actively with Catholicism as an animist way of, of uh, engaging the world. And I think that works uh, That works probably fairly well. Mm. I think this, again, speaks to our potential for healing our relations with the world through giving myths and stories the fluidity to grow and evolve and be adapted and just kind of letting them come alive to the present, in a sense. And in terms of offering some inspirations for our paths forward, you share humans are responsible for the right functioning of the world, and we need to participate in it in the right way for it to function, end quote. This also counters a pretty cynical and I think misguided narrative of separatism that I often come across in environmentalist spaces, which is this idea that humans need the earth, but the earth does not need humans, as if we are not parts of the greater bodies of our landscapes and the planet, and also as if destruction were the only story inherent to human nature. So just to close off our main discussion here, I would welcome you to share anything else that comes to mind with these points that were raised in terms of what we need to do to participate in the healthier functioning of the world, as well as any other invitations to action or deeper inquiry that you have for us. Yeah, that's cynicism that you are talking about there, the idea that, that the earth doesn't need us. Well, I, I think it's a very cynical perspective. And I can't help kind of suspecting that it might come from people. You sometimes meet this sort of kind of, oh, humanity should, should just die out and and then then the world will flourish again, flourish again. <laughs> and well, you know, perhaps, you know, in, in, in 30 million years, the, the, the biodiversity would probably be, be back on track, you know. But, I, I mean, it, it seems to me to be a little bit of a sort of a... A teenage perspective, like a little bit like like we are facing here. We are standing with our feet, and we are facing catastrophes of incredible proportions. The Middle East is going to be uninhabitable for humans within one and a half to two generations from now. Uninhabitable for humans, and they're always putting that date closer to us. We are facing problems of a seriousness that is so radical that I don't I don't think it's an option to sort of say ah, I'm not dealing with that. In fact, it also smells a little bit of of somebody who's probably living in a in a northern hemisphere kind of privileged urban setting. Like if if you live in Burkina Faso, 
I, I don't think that that uh, just like yeah, well, a world without humans that that would be probably be a good thing, you know, because you're gonna feel that on your own body when the Sahara starts pressing south, you know, and this is also why th- this I would say more indigenous leaning perspective that is uh, where we think about humans as actively engaged in making the world work humans humans are part of humans have a role like many of these indigenous thinkers they they would talk about custodianship humans as the custodial species or stewardship there is there is something that we do all the time in order to make stuff continue working and if you go and actually look at these indigenous peoples, you find that the uh, Barasana in 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 uh, Colombia they have uh, rules about how they uh, d- derive their livelihood from the river uh, in which they live, and that those rules make the river an environment that is not overcrowded by human activity all the time. That's custodianship, you know, and and many of like even here here in in, in northern Europe in in the pre-Christian age, there were these great celebrations where everybody gathered in one place in the sacred sites, and they were basically calling on, I think, you know, connectedness. They were purifying their communities of those corrosive, invisible violences that are creating the disconnect between us and and the world around us. And these kind that is humans stepping into taking responsibility for, for being part of the world and perhaps even managing the world with, with through custodianship and so on. There's a lot of, ma- many people have this idea that when European colonizers moved around in the world, then what they met in, I don't know, in Australia or South America or something, was these serene nature where there happened to be living human beings. But like we know now that that's actually not the case. What they were looking at was landscapes that were very, very thoroughly and tightly managed by indigenous populations based on their millennia of developing their ecological traditional knowledge in order to maintain the world as a functioning harmonious place where there is also space for humans. What has been the most impactful book that you've read or publication you follow? I think I would mention very much Tyson Junkerporter again, his his sand talk. That is I also felt when I read it, and that is I think some some of the best stuff you read or that that you hear is the stuff that makes you feel, ah, so that is why I think and do why I do, you know, mm. it, it felt very aligned with, with the stuff that I was already sort of finding and realizing and so on. And so, and because it is such a dynamic and relational way of thinking and it, it steps in at its roots, it steps very clearly away from, for instance, the static nationalist way of thinking about, for instance, human culture, then it is, I think, a, a very much a an indigenous thinking for our time. And I was actually surprised. I don't think I ever studied, not, not seriously, not uh, Aboriginal Australian culture. I was also surprised, oh, wow, is that, that it was really a wow moment to find that that was so meaningful. And I think that, that for a lot of contemporary majority populations, reading like that would really make a difference. Mm, and I definitely echo that recommendation as well. What is a personal motto, mantra, or practice you engage with to stay grounded? 
Well, I, ha I have a motto on my on my channel, which is all the power to all the relations. <laughs> mm. But I don't. I wouldn't say that I have personal mottos or mantras, but I have places that I go to that are mm. places where I grew up, and there are places in the forests there and and uh, the rivers there where I I uh, I go to to feel connected. Mm. And what is your biggest source of inspiration at the moment? I mean, stuff that I'm continuously always inspired by is the Elder Edda, which are pre-Christian, pre-Christian sacred poems or songs from from Northern Europe, and uh, that is it's incredibly, incredibly deep and also enigmatic and 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 difficult. So that and that kind of stuff is is of course very inspirational because it's so. So, um, yeah, mysterious. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, to our listener, Green Dreamer, we are coming to a close here, but you can learn more about Rune's work at nordicanimism.com. And Rune, it's been an honor to have you. Thank you so much for sharing your wealth of learnings and inspirations here with us. For now, though, what final words of wisdom would you like to leave us with as Green Dreamers? Well, I would like to uh, just leave you with the note of connectedness as the uh, connectedness and transformation as the uh, the yeah the motto or the the label under which we can deal with the uh, huge traffic accident that we have made of contemporary civilization this episode of green dreamer was brought to you by listeners like you and to be honest, we cannot keep the show going without more direct support. So if you value independent media and counterculture conversations like this, you can help to sustain and co-create the future of this show with a donation of any amount at greendreamer.com support. Without a media network behind us, we also rely entirely on human-to-human word-of-mouth sharing so that our extensive library of episodes can inspire and reach more people. So if you get the chance to share your favorite episodes with loved ones or to write us a five-star review in the podcast app, this all helps us so much as well. Green Dreamer is a proud partner of Kaliapea Foundation, which shares our vision and understanding that ecological, cultural, and spiritual renewal are interdependent. The song featured in this episode is Tear Down the Wall by Forest Vale. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell. Our production manager is Tammy Gunn. Our transcript editor is Janice Cantieri. And I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Take care, and I will catch you soon in the next episode. <laughs>